1: What? <laughs>
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. This is your podcast of music discovery. We are a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network, and we are so happy that you're with us. We are also the producers of our spinoff podcast, Audio Judo Does Jazz, hosted by our show consultant, Chris, which takes a deep dive into the complex world of jazz music. Mm -hmm. Originally, that series was set up to run for 16 episodes on a limited run, but the response has been so good that after talking at length with Chris, we have decided to make it permanent.
1: Right, exciting.
0: The run was set for 16 episodes. We are going to complete that run, take a couple-month break or so, and then come back with an all-new season two. Chris is excited, and we are excited, and we hope that if you haven't had a chance to check it out yet, you will do so.
1: Yeah, it's really good, especially if you don't know anything about jazz. It's a good primer to learn some of the basics and where to to get on board if you want to listen.
0: And you can find that at audiojuda.com forward slash AJDJ or anywhere that podcasts our podcast. Mm-hmm. Kyle's back at it again this week. He I has am. Chosen another of the highest selling
1: records of all time. Because <laughs> why not? What are we talking about today? Uh, dire Straits Brothers in Arms. Huge album. Huge, gigantic album. Massive
0: success. Great. Right? And it contains a song or at least part of a song that is heard every day across the world. Multiple times. We will get to that nugget Ooh. later. 30 million albums sold, right. Grammys, Brit Awards, accolades up the yin yang, and a lot of revisionist history, as many, many reviewers were merciless in their negativity when oh it was first God, released. Yes, they were. But changed their tune after it achieved worldwide success. Imagine right. that. Uh, before we talk about this album though, should uh, want to talk a little bit about Dire Straits Let's itself? Let's
1: talk a little bit about Dire Straits themselves. So they're a British rock band based out of London. Their original lineup was, uh, Mark Knopfler on lead vocals and guitar, David Knopfler, uh, on rhythm guitar and backing vocals, uh, John Illsley on bass guitar and backing vocals, and Pick Withers on drums and percussion.
0: And the band formed in London, but Mark and David Knopfler were actually from Newcastle, England. Yes. Who else do we know, Kyle, from Newcastle, England?
1: Mm, I feel like that's very familiar. should know this right off the top of my head. Sting
0: is from Newcastle, England. Oh,
1: what a surprise. And that,
0: of course, is not the only connection between the police frontman and Dire Straits, as we will find out. Indeed, we will. Go on.
1: So the brothers Knopfler and their two friends formed the band in 19, formed a band in 1977. Pick Withers had already been in the music industry for about 10 years at that point, playing with bands like Dave Edmonds, Jerry Rafferty, uh, Magna Carta, and uh, was in the band Spring uh, when Dire Straits formed. Uh, Mark was working as an English teacher and was also in a pub rock band called Brewer's Droop uh, around 1973, which, by the way, is a name for an STD. Uh, John Ilsley was enrolled in Goldsmiths College, and David was a social worker. I got the Brewer's Droop. I got the Brewer's Droop. Uh, originally, their name was Cafe Racers. The name Dire Straits was coined by a musician flatmate of Withers who thought it up while they were rehearsing One Day in a Kitchen. Uh, that belonged to a friend of the band, Simon Cow. Not Simon Cowell. Not, Simon, Not Cowell. Simon Cowell. Simon Cowell. C-O-W-E. Uh, in 1977, they recorded a five-song demo tape that included Sultans of Swing, Water of Love, and Down to the Waterline, which they took to MCA Records, uh, but they were turned down. Three, two,
0: three, two of those songs could be heard on... Rock radio every day right now.
1: Indeed they can. And some jackass executive at the Soho offices of MCA Records was like, you guys suck. Get this out of here. Sultans a Swing. Mm -hmm. One of the most recognizable guitar licks in all of rock and roll history. Uh Uh-huh. Turned it down. Now, mind you, this was the demo and it may have sounded a little differently. Oh, whatever. But still, you would think that somebody who, you know, worked in the music industry professionally would be able to be like, hey, there's some potential here. But they were not. So, what they ended up doing was they were trying again and they went to a DJ friend of theirs named DJ Charlie Gillette who hosted a BBC Radio London show and asked for some advice from him, saying, what could we do to spruce this up, make it a little bit more poppy, make it a little bit more something that people want to listen to, essentially. Uh, but he liked the demo as it was so much that he began to play Sultans of Swing on his show. Two months later, the band signed with Vertigo, a division of uh, Phonogram Records, and released their self-titled al- album, Dire Straits, in October 1978.
0: Yeah, they toured with the Talking Heads. Yes. As Sultans of Swing began to climb the chart... Which led to a much bigger recording contract, Mm -hmm. this time from Warner Brothers. Yes. In 78, they began the year playing 51 sold-out shows in 38 days. Listen to that one more time, everybody. 51 sold-out shows shows in 38 38 days. days. No one, and I mean no one in the music industry works like that anymore. Even no. the younger bands don't have those kind of itineraries, and it must have been absolutely brutal. Oh,
1: absolutely. I can only imagine, because you must have been doing oh. two shows in the same venue on a lot of those nights. Uh, that that workload must have just been nuts. Terrible. But eventually, Dire Straits, the album, not the band, Correct. Uh, would be in the top ten in every single European country at the same time. It's pretty is amazing. Pretty impressive. In 1979, their first North American tour happened. Sultans of Swing made it to number four on the U.S. charts shortly thereafter. Communique was their second album. It did very well. Number five on the U.K. charts, number one in Germany.
0: It was recorded in Nassau, Bahamas, which would be a bit of a pattern for them, Mm -hmm. uh, and had featured the minor hit Lady Writer, which is a great song. Yeah.
1: Uh, 1980, they were nominated for two Grammy Awards Best New Artist and Best Rock Vocal Performance by a duo or group. They did not win, but good to be nominated. Their third album, Making Movies, comes out in 1980, and it stayed on the UK Albums Chart for five years, peaking at number four.
0: <laughs> and that, uh, so during the making of that particular record, that old familiar bugaboo that we found a lot through the process of these podcasts began to rear its ugly head. Mm-hmm. Familial Squabbles. Yes. The brothers could not get along. Repeatedly brought those difficulties into the studio and the recording process. As Mark was the dominant member of the band, the de facto leader, as it were, it would be Brother David that left Mm -hmm. uh, during the recording of this record and left uncredited. And he went on to pursue a largely unsuccessful solo career. Yeah. Making movies released in October 1980. And while I have almost no familiarity with this record, it was quite well received. Hmm. Uh, Had no actual hits as far as singles are concerned, as it focused on longer songs, more complicated arrangements. Rolling Stone named Making Movies the number number 52 on its list of top 100 albums of the 80s. And that's weird. Yeah. Because I know absolutely nothing about this record. <laughs> and maybe I should revisit that list.
1: Right. Like you said, the album uh, took its toll on the band. Sid McGinnis ended up playing rhythm guitar on that album. Keyboards were covered by Roy uh, Batan. After the recording was finished, Alan Clark joined the band on keyboards and Hal Linz joined on guitar. They released their fourth studio album, Love Over Gold, in September 1982, which went gold, good enough, in America and spent four weeks at number one in the UK. Not quite as successful as they had hoped it would be, but still. Um, Private Investigations was Dire Straits' first top five single in the UK It reached number two. And they continue to tour and record for the next few years until we get to our album today.
0: Yeah, that Love Over Gold actually sold two million copies in its first few weeks of release, mm-hmm. which is impressive. Very successful at that time. Knopfler during this time also wrote the song Private Dancer, recorded a version of it before handing it off to Tina Turner. Mm-hmm. It would also be the last album recorded with founding member Pick Withers. After this, they took a bit of an extended break where Knopfler was involved in many, many outside projects including producing Bob Dylan's 1984 album, Infidels.
1: I just had a weird realization. What's that? It's, uh, so in the last couple of months, we have recorded Tina Turner, we just did Bob Seger, and we're now doing Dire Straits. Yes. And they all have that weird interlaced Tina Turner thing multiple times.
0: Bob Bob Seger has Tina Turner interlaced?
1: Yeah, because he recorded Nutbush City Limits. Oh, that's true. And Ike Turner was involved with the record company that represented one of the artists whom he covered on oh. the song Mary Lou.
0: That is a lot of weird uh That's threads. a weird
1: coincidence, and it just popped into my head right now. Interesting. That is
0: strange. In late 84, they reconvened to record what would eventually become the record we're going to talk about today, Brothers in Arms. Recorded, like so many big records uh, of the early to mid-80s, at the Idyllic Air Studios on the tiny Caribbean island of Montserrat. Mm-hmm. And it would become a monster hit and just... How monster
1: was it, Kyle? Oh, man, you're going to make me mess up my notes here. Oh, wait, what do okay. you got? No, it's oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a big history about this, but I will skip to the end here and get you all the, the statistics first, and then we'll come back to the history. On release, like we have said, it got a lot of negative reviews, especially in the UK, but it was a financial success and would go on to tons of acclaim from the industry as the years went on. It spent a total of 14 non-consecutive weeks at number one on the UK album chart, including 10 consecutive weeks between January and March 1986 spent nine weeks at number one on the billboard 200 in the u.s it spent 34 weeks at number one on the australian albums chart it was the first album certified 10 times platinum in the uk it was certified nine times platinum in the u.s depending upon where you look it is the eighth best selling album in uk chart history it is one of the best selling albums ever with over 30 million copies sold won the 1986 Grammy Award for Best Engineered Album, Non-Classical, won the 1987 Brit Award for Best British Album, the 20th Anniversary Edition of this album, which came out in 2005, won the 2006 Grammy for Best Surround Sound Album, As of July 2016, it is the 8th best-selling album of all time in the UK. Like I said, it is the 3rd best-selling album of all time in Australia. It is the 18th best-selling album of all time in France. In the Netherlands, the album used to hold the record for longest run ever on the Dutch album chart with 269 weeks. Nice. Uh, But it lost to Adele's 21 in 2016. Oh. Q Magazine placed this album at number 51 in its list of the 100 greatest British albums ever and it is one of the 10 albums nominated for the best British album of the previous 30 years by the Brit Awards in 2010. Matthew, can you tell me what album it lost to? What was that last part? So it it was nominated for to be one of the best British albums of the previous 30 years. Oh, it's probably fucking Oasis, isn't it? What's the story, Morning Glory, That's a bunch by Oasis? Of
0: bullshit. Sorry, Matthew. Bull Shit. So what, what what do you have your history there?
1: So one of the things that we do need to mention is that this album is absolutely renowned for its sonic clarity and clean engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was produced and engineered by Mark Knopfler himself and by a man named Neil Dorfman. Dorfman, who is not Tim Conway kneeling down with a funny mustache on.
0: Dorf. Dorf's. Dorf's on golf.
1: Yeah. Uh, he had worked with the band before on Love Over Gold and on Knopfler's 1983 soundtrack album, Local Hero. Uh, he has worked with a who's who of musician musical masters including uh Sting, Paul McCartney, Bruce Hornsby, Bjork, Paul Brady, Def Leppard, Bonnie Tyler, they might be giants, Richie Sambora and Tears for Fears, just to name a few. Oh and also the 1995 soundtrack to the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Uh he did that as well. Go go look up his uh, Wikipedia article. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, on the note on that same note of clarity, uh, Brothers in Arms was one of the first albums to be recorded on a Sony 24-track digital tape machine. Uh, the decision to move to digital came from Mark Knopfler's constant search for better sound quality. Dorfman said in an interview with Sound on Sound, quote, One of the things that I totally respected about him was his interest in technology as a means of improving his music. He was always willing to spend on high quality equipment. Uh, Brothers in Arms was also one of the first albums pointed directly at the high end audiophile compact disc market. Uh, it was a full digital recording at a time when most popular music was recorded on analog equipment. It was also released on cassette and vinyl, the latter of which has a shortened runtime to fit on a single LP. So the vinyl only runs 47 minutes and 40 seconds versus the CD, which has, and the cassette, which has 55 minutes and 11 seconds of runtime. Uh, the first album to sell 1 million copies on CD, uh, and the first album where CD sales outstripped LP sales. Um, an employee of RycoDisc, the company that was producing the CDs, wrote, quote, in 1985, we were fighting to get our CDs manufactured because the entire worldwide manufacturing capacity was overwhelmed by demand for a single rock title, Dire Straits Brothers in Arms. Mm. It was originally recorded in air studios on the island of Montserrat uh, in the Caribbean between October 1984 and February 1985. Uh, it only took them five months to record this. It must have been living hell being on a Caribbean island for five months. <laughs> really, really just terrible. Um, The album uh, quite literally tore apart parts of the band, though. Uh, At the beginning of the sessions, Hal Linz uh, quit or was fired, depending upon whose story you read. He was replaced by Jack Sonny, a longtime friend of the band. However, his contributions to this album were, quote, minimal. After about a month of recording, it was decided, quote, unquote, that Terry Williams' drumming wasn't up to par. And he was replaced by jazz session drummer Omar Hakim, who you may remember from our episode about Sting, uh, the Soul Cages. Uh, He's one of the great artists that Sting works with repeatedly. Uh, Williams wasn't fired from the band, however, but he was released from recording sessions for this album. He is credited only on one song here, and it is the intro to Money for Nothing. Uh, He would, however, tour with the band after this and and play all the songs. So whatever. Omar Hakim, however, recorded all his drum parts in two days because he had other commitments. So he literally flew to Montserrat, recorded for two days, and then left. Um Some follow-up sessions had to be recorded at Power Station Studios in New York during early 1985 due to a bad batch of tapes during the original recordings. So they literally were like, oops, we screwed up all these original recordings. We got to do it all again. So during those follow-up sessions... They added uh, some Jack Sunny guitar synthesizer, s- guitar and synthesizer parts to The Man's Too Strong. They did overdubs by several prominent New York musicians of the time, including Michael and Randy Brecker, uh, Mike Maneri, who had contributed to Love Over Gold, uh, Jimmy Malin, uh, trumpeter Dave Pluz, and average white band saxophonist Malcolm Duncan. Ilsley had sprained his wrist in a roller skating accident, so several bassists from the New York City music scene contributed to the redubs, including. Tony Levine on the song One, excuse me, of the song One World, and Neil Jason of the Saturday Night Live house band. So now I'm back to where I was in my notes originally. After all that rambling, Randy, you can cut all that out. So uh, (laughs) that's all right. You pretty much did all
0: of my notes for the entire episode.
1: Perfect. That's great.
0: Pretty much took everything. Sweet. So, like I said, it's a huge album. It is hugely important. But originally, this album was despised in their home country. Strangely spiteful the re- reviewers seem to be, to the point of insult. Matt Snow from the NME said this about it. He criticized Knopfler's, quote, mawkish self-pity, his lugubriously mannered appropriation of Rockin' his thumpingly crass attempts at wit he also accused the album of the tritest would-be melodies in history the last word in tranquilizing chord changes the most cloying lonesome playing and ultimate in transparently fake troubadour sentiment ever to ooze out of a million dollar recording studio
1: oh somebody's mommy got him a thesaurus for their birthday a
0: prick. that's a- <laughs> Those are not nice words. No. And they, they are didn't not. get much better with other reviewes reviewers saying the old rock school restraints and the undeniably attractive smell of the winning formula seem to block out any such experimental work. And what you end with end up with is something very like the same old story. American reviewers, though, were much kinder to it. Uh, But I'm amazed at the contempt these writers seem to have for it. And I couldn't find any hard evidence. But I wonder if these writers also loved Oasis and hated Dire Straits. I wonder if there's some kind of hypocrisy or lack of vision. But regardless, this album was powerful, successful, and struck a chord with people all over the world. And to their credit, they took what is essentially a middle-of-the-road rock band with blues influences and married that sound with some Americana and marketed it into America's living room at just the right time, right at the ascent of MTV. And because of that timing and some well-structured guitar sounds, the sound of a member of the police wanting his MTV, and some visionary graphics for 1985, they would become household names. Personally, I had very little invested in Dire Straits until 1985. Before this album was released, I had heard Sultans of Swing, obviously, and my brother had the Communique album on vinyl, uh, but I had never really listened to it because the album cover was boring, and the title <laughs> and the title was French. I had no interest in discovering it, so it laid there amongst the other records that I ignored. In 1985, I had had a paper out for a while, and I felt it was a good time to become a victim of commerce, so I traveled down the devil's path toward Columbia House Records and the 11 cassettes for one penny. No! I liked the album cover for Brothers in Arms better, so I gave it a whirl. And I liked it a lot because I was super familiar with almost half of it already from the constant air on MTV. About half of it I didn't love, so I didn't go back to it very often. What I will say at the outset, before we take our deep dive into it, is that it is another record that falls victim to the time it was recorded. It sounds dated.
1: It is a very 80s sounding album.
0: The electronic drums, the synclavier, the fairlight, they stand out so much. And the sound of the production wears that 80s hat. It's thin. So some of the songwriting is exquisite and thought provoking, but it suffers from the production. And it makes sense that while it was hugely popular at the time, it doesn't get talked about much these days. With sales over 30 million, you would think that it would get placed regularly on top 10 albums of all time lists or something like that. Yeah. Rolling Stones list of top 500 albums of all time from 2020 lists this at number 418 which I'm guessing is the lowest number for the highest seller. Yeah. And uh, I
1: would say you're probably correct.
0: And I think it we're going to talk about that but it falls victim to to that sound. You want to talk about what?
1: Yeah, so you just said you liked the front cover. What let's go to that. What what did you like about it? I like the guitar. The picture on
0: the front of the album cover is a steel guitar. Knopfler's 1937 14 fret national style O resonator. I love saying that,
1: O resonator.
0: The style O line of guitars was introduced in 1930 and discontinued in 1941. Indeed it was. Uh, The picture was taken by Deborah Feingold, and she has had an extensive career, holy shit, doing everything from book covers to album covers to portrait work of just about everyone you could possibly imagine.
1: Her jazz musician portrait work, there's a few examples on her website. They are fantastic. Yeah. They are mostly in black and white, but they are very, very good. She does really cool lighting effects and things. Agreed. I shouldn't call them effects. She does very cool lighting. She picks very good spots to take photos in a much more traditional style than most modern photographers do, knowing today, oh, I can fix it in post. I can go in and touch it up in Photoshop and make it look whatever, like whatever I want. Hers are much more traditional, and they're fantastic looking. They're beautiful. It, it, the album cover is iconic. Um, Go ahead. The back cover has a beautiful painting of the guitar from the front cover by German artist uh, Thomas Steyer.
0: That's true. Uh, you have more about the album cover?
1: I got a couple more things. Go ahead. Uh, the original design is credited to Sutton Cooper and Andrew Pruitt, um, who are just both uh, graphic designers. A similar image was also used with a similar color scheme for the recorded in 1973 but released in 1989 album The Booze Brothers by a brewer's, droop. Uh, brewer's who, droop who you may remember was uh, uh mark Knopfler's uh and pick withers early uh, pub band so they recorded this album way long ago dire straits became popular and then they were like let's make some money
0: <laughs> i like it
1: <laughs> right should we uh, take a quick break and we'll come back not oh, yet you got one more
0: yeah so i think one you brought this up to some degree uh one thing we need to talk about before the track-by-track track is that this is one of the first records with the CD market in mind. Yes. It was not only recorded fully digitally, but it was produced ignoring the conventional thought that an album had to be 45 or 50 yes, minutes. Yes, it was. Or else it had to either A, compromise and compress the music, which sacrificed its quality, or B, make the record a double LP. And they did neither of these things. They made an album that runs 55 minutes for CD. They released a vinyl version, still very popular at the time. They edited the running length of almost every single song. The song Why Worry, for example, gets trimmed from eight plus minutes Mm -hmm. on the CD to a little over five, and I think it's a very interesting way to get around those limitations, Yeah, especially if the majority of the stuff that you're trimming is instrumental stuff from the ends of songs, as we will see that they have a pattern of doing.
1: And I definitely feel like it's a weird... I feel weird about that, because... On the one hand, it's not the way the artist originally envisioned it, and therefore it's it's not their artistic vision. And I think that that's, I'm not going to say wrong, but not the best that it could be. The flip side of that is, does a normal person know? You know what I mean? If you heard the cut version on the radio, would you be like, God, that didn't feel long enough? No, of course not. No. You'd enjoy the song and then move on with your life. So it's a weird, weird place to be in.
0: I agree. Now do you want to take
1: Yeah, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and do a track-by-track.
0: Don't Smother Nature is a one-stop shop for sustainable home goods. They do the research to compile all the best and most affordable options and group them into a convenient online location. With smooth navigation, helpful support, and easy returns and tracking, they make transitioning you and your home to be more Earth-friendly a simple and accessible process. They just had their grand opening, so browse their extensive catalog now at DontSmotherNature.com. That's DontSmotherNature.com. The winter is nearly upon us, everyone, and it's about this time of the year that I start shifting from normal, chilled wine to something a little warmer. How do you feel about tea, Kyle?
1: Uh, I'm not a big tea drinker, but I have
0: had it before. Well, I had like a lot of different teas, but if you think you know tea then you haven't tried Tiesta Tea. Oh, It's premium loose leaf tea. It comes in five different varieties like Energizer and Slenderizer and Relaxer. A whole bunch of flavors like Maui Mango, Lavender, Chamomile, and Fruity Paradise. Ooh. Uh, my favorite is Nutty Almond Cream, Ooh. which is a perfect cup to just chill me out before I go to sleep. That
1: sounds very much like a nice wintry blend. It's nice. Heather and I have uh,
0: tried some, and she has a favorite or two. We have, we have I actually really like that one as well. It it's reminiscent of a snickerdoodle cookie. Ooh. So the scent, like when you're just kind of holding the cup and just like putting it up to your and nose, breathing and the breathing steam that in. aroma in, it's it's like a, a snickerdoodle just like blasting you in the face. Yeah, Ooh. it's awesome. So they are also our new partners. And if you order with the code JUDO15, you can get 15% off your order. Just go to TS2T.com, put in the code at checkout. That's JUDO15. Because once you go loose, you never go
1: bagged. Matthew, you are so far away right now. Is the sort of the uh, the ultimate musician on the road far away from home song. And also it's a wish we could fuck, but we're too far away, so maybe I'll call you on the phone and rub one out while we talk song. Clearly.
0: <laughs> it's a opening track to the record with lead single from the record of the UK, but it would not be released in North America until a full year after the album's mm-hmm. release as a third single. UK it would reach number twenty in the U. And number 19 on the Billboard chart, as well as number three on the Adult Contemporary chart. Right. And this is kind of what I was alluding to earlier about the way he began to incorporate Americana music more oh, yeah. into their sound the slidish guitar and just the mellow. Laid-back delivery is very reminiscent of later Springsteen, or maybe some John Mellencamp, okay. maybe a band like the Hooters, or Ooh. Bruce Hornsby and the Range.
1: Not it's, familiar with either of them, but all right. It's
0: music that I like to call heartland music, and it was perfected for a short time by a bunch of Brits. Huh. And I think part of that is all of the R&B influences being folded into the sound, because while the Americans were looking towards England to discover a sound to emulate, The Brits were looking to America and the old blues and jazz performances, as well as the Chuck Berries and the Little Richards. There's an element of uh, country there as well. Yeah. So lyrically, it's something that may be more relatable now than it was back then. Relationships over the phone. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, kids, having a long-term relationship was almost always doomed to fail or... The very least extremely difficult to maintain, there was no constant contact. You had to rely on nightly phone calls, and it left a lot of time for the mind to wander and I would imagine for a musician, especially, the more time you spend not thinking or being in contact with someone you love, the more they kind of drift from your heart. Kids today are constantly in contact with their significant other others or everybody. <laughs> And while I'm sure there are some negative consequences to that as well, I would imagine it's a little easier to at least maintain that connection. Go ahead. I
1: would say, I love the guitar sound in this, and I love that we're immediately introduced to it because it permeates basically the rest of this album. And it sounds a little bit like this. I'm tired of being in love and being all alone
2: When you're so far away So far away from me, so far I just can't see. So far away from me, you're
1: so far away from me. There, that, yeah, I mean, so far away. It is a, a huge hit in this country. It does incredibly well, and it's still played on the radio today.
0: One thing I was going to say that I noticed about uh, all these years later, No Bridge. Yeah. The song kind of meanders a little bit, but it never really arrives anywhere. And I'm actually quite surprised that this song was as big as it was, but I'm pretty sure that it has everything to do with the next song, mm-hmm. because very few songs ever go quite as big as this one.
1: Right. Matthew, do you make all your money for nothing?
0: Actually, I kind of do. Uh, Is there anyone out there that doesn't know this song?
1: I don't think so. One of the most
0: recognizable songs ever written and recorded.
1: Yes, it, it absolutely. And part of that is it specifically was designed to play on MTV. It mentions MTV in the song. They made a completely unique music video for it and then pushed it to MTV, which was new at the time. And that's where it became an absolute staple. It was the most successful song
0: in their career, selling millions of copies. Nominated for three Grammys, winning one for Best Rock Performance mm-hmm. by Duo Group. Spent three weeks at number one on the Billboard Top 100. Its music video received 11 nominations, winning two, getting repeatedly beaten in that awards ceremony by AHA's Take On Me, <laughs> which was incidentally directed by the same guy. It's the riff. It's the lyrics. It's Sting. It's the video. It's everything. Right. Let's start with a riff. Go for it. Knopfler, who was very well-known by this point for his finger-picking and his very clean guitar sound, opted for a distortion-heavy, overdriven sound that, as he stated, he wanted to sound like ZZ Top. Mm -hmm. Billy Gibbons would later say that Knopfler reached out to him, and he never responded to him, but said that it was a very accurate sound, considering I never told him a goddamn thing. (laughs) So in the studio, they tried to replicate it, Using every manner of effect and pedal, and the sound they ended up with was they got by accident. One of the mics on the main amp turned itself sideways at some point, and that change made all the difference. Happy accidents. The lyrics are told from the point of view of appliance store workers. Mm -hmm. The song is about rock star excess and the easy life it brings compared with real work. Knopfler wrote it after overhearing delivery men in a New York department store complain about their jobs while watching MTV. He wrote the song in the store sitting in a kitchen display they had set up. Many of the lyrics were things they actually said. And of course, through the years, there has been plenty of backlash for the derogatory term used for gay people in this song. Knopfler said this about it. I got an objection from the editor of a gay newspaper in London. He actually said it was below the belt. Apart from the fact that there are stupid gay people as well as stupid other people, it suggests that maybe you can't let it have so many meetings. You have to be direct. In fact, I'm still in two minds as to whether it's a good idea to write songs that aren't in the first person to take on other characters. The singer in Money for Nothing is a real ignoramus, hard-hat mentality, someone who sees everything in financial terms. I mean, this guy... Has a grudging respect for rock stars. He sees it in terms of, well, that's not working yet. This guy's rich. That's a good scam. He's not sneering. So
1: what's your take on this, Kyle? So obviously it is, it is controversial. Um, I like to look at things like this from, from both sides if it's at all possible to do so. So uh, apparently that makes me a weirdo because most people don't do that. But that's how I come to my own personal conclusions with these things. So from one perspective, this song is written in the third person. It's, like you said, it's from the point of view of a stupid character uh, who thinks that the musicians have it easy and that they make money for doing nothing. Uh, he uses the term as a pejorative, which absolutely fits with the way many, many people use that term throughout the 1980s when this song was written, especially stupid people. Uh, Mark Knopfler pointed out in the 1985 interview with Bill Flanagan that he wrote down and then used the actual words of the salesman in the appliance store. Uh, he also pointed out in multiple interviews going all the way back to 1985 that the character in this song is meant to represent the stupidest and most ignorant people around us. And having them use a word that most people know is derogatory is a very quick shorthand for that. However, on the other hand... Since they were using that term as shorthand to show how stupid the character was, that meant that they knew that term was derogatory, and they knew that a lot of people would be listening to the song and would also know that it was a derogatory term. Uh, They were not inexperienced musicians at this point, nor were they new to the game of marketing music at this point, and they had plenty of people bring the subject up to them over the years and presumably leading up to the release of this album. Uh, it came up in several interviews, one in particular where Knopfler mentions receiving an objection from the editor of a gay newspaper in London, which I assume is the one you were just talking about. Um, the critic Robert Christigal said of the the quote, Word Knopfler has somehow gotten on the radio with no static from the PMRC. He wrote in his column, I mean, why not little N-word with the spit curl instead of little faggot with the earring, Mark? Hmm. Uh, the band or their management knew how far this song could spread. They knew how far they were going to push it to spread. And because of that, uh, they aimed, they aimed it at getting a lot of airplay on the radio and they aimed at putting it on, on MTV. So they made a conscious choice to leave that term in there. So knowing both sides of the story like that, I honestly don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. Um, because on the one hand, it is a product of its time and place. I I kind of view it the same way that I view like a Mark Twain novel. You go back and look at, you know, Huck Finn uh, or Tom Sawyer uh, or any of the novels that he wrote around that time. It was very much written at the time that it was. And I don't think that Mark Twain was necessarily somebody who was overtly racist. I believe that he actually was not particularly racist and felt that what was happening to black people at the time was wrong. But he did write characters in his stories that were racial stereotypes. He wrote characters that had names that were by today's standards very inappropriate. And he said things about characters that weren't by today's standards okay. That being said, it was a product of its time. I think the same way about this song. It was a product of the 80s. It was a time where because gay people, and for that matter, all LGBTQ plus people were sort of becoming more public, people were actually starting to come out and be open about their sexuality and open about who they were, you were getting that backlash. You were getting that the stupidest people in our society did not understand what was happening. And as a a pushback against it, they latched on to words like this. They latched on to thoughts and feelings like this to push back against it just because they were too ignorant to understand or too unwilling to change their ignorance to understand. So for me, it's never been something that actively bothered me, but I understand why it does bother a lot of other people. What I'm going to say is go out and listen to it unedited. Yes, it is a you know content warning if that type of term uh, bothers you. Um, go out and listen to it and see what you think about it and see if you feel like today it's something that without it, the song still holds up, or if it doesn't, and then let us know. Yeah,
0: well, that's good. That's good. I feel like there's a bit of satire there, not necessarily... The viewpoint of the writer, yeah, but but I agree they knew what they were doing, and that may have been intentional. He knew what he was doing to 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 get that into the song, yeah, because he was essentially quoting who he was listening to, yeah, and he wanted to portray how ignorant and stupid the people were. But
1: that's also giving him a lot of credit for that, yeah, and yeah. uh, I do want to say though that I do love the opening to this song, and if you listen to the full version. It is this weird sort of ethereal thing, and you hear somebody saying, "I want my MTV." Who is that, Matthew? Uh, I don't know. You should play it though. Yeah. Well, I I only I kind of cut that part out. <laughs> oh, did you really? <laughs> but I have the oh, amazing Terry you- Williams. This is the only spot on this album you can hear Terry Williams drumming right at the beginning of this song. Uh, do you
0: want to know who it is?
1: Yeah. Who is it that says
0: that? Sting. What? Stingarama. Stingaling a ding dong. What? Sting. That guy. Wow. He and Phil Collins owned the 1980s. Apparently. So he's down in the Caribbean, right? Doing a little bit of windsurfing, as you are wont to do.
1: Presumably some tantric sex.
0: All right, and he comes over for supper at the studio. Just does the the old drop-in. They play him the track, and he uh, says, well, now you've done it this time, you bastards. (laughs) Apparently indicating that it was good. So Knopfler says to him, well, if it's so good, why don't you go add something to it? So he did. Unrehearsed. Unplanned. Wow. Blam. What he recorded to the melody of Don't Stand So Close to Me is probably the most heard four words on television in the last 40 years. It was played constantly. And as I mentioned before, if you watch MTV now, at the end of every one of their reality shows, they play I Want My MTV Sung by Sting. Yeah. He most likely could have retired on the royalties from this song alone. And because he added his bit,
1: he gets a co-writing credit. Which he actually has said he's embarrassed about, because he kind of did it for a laugh, for fun. And then his publishing company was like, no, you need to get writer credit for yeah. that. And he was like, oh, shit. And then they had to go back and ask. And Dire Straits was like, well, yeah, of course. But and still. It's only
0: the third song in all of the Dire Straits catalog not to be solely composed by Mark Knopfler. Right. And Sting's like, I just walked in and said, I want my MTV. Good enough. And he was so, like, at like the very end of the song... When he's singing backup, yeah, money for nothing. He could he be any more sting? No. Than he then he is. I mean, he's so sting.
1: He is That's, at the
0: end that where he starts to take over the song, and you're like, yeah. is this
1: sting? Or is he gonna keep going straight? Is he gonna get more? Is he gonna get bigger and bigger and bigger? Well, here here's what the opening to this track sounds okay. like. Terry Williams drumming. Only time you hear it in this album, right there. Yeah. And then the video. Oh my god, this video. The groundbreaking video
0: was one of the very first to feature computer animated human characters. Knopfler did not want to do the video at all.
1: No, he hated the idea of it.
0: Steve Barron directed it, as well as Take On Me by Aha and Thomas Dolby's She Blinded Me With Science, both equally groundbreaking. Knopfler hated this idea and was only convinced when his American girlfriend told him it was a great idea and was something she would want to see. Right. Only then did he relent. And thank you for that, whoever you are, lady, because it's awesome. It is
1: a great video. It was an absolute staple on MTV throughout the 80s and 90s. The 1986 MTV Music Video Awards, it was was nominated for 11 awards. 11? And it won Video of the Year and Best Group Video, which is nuts. (laughs) And while the album seems dated to me a little bit, this
0: song even feels dated to some degree. The song will live on forever because it has become part of popular culture. You couldn't have escaped it even if you tried. A couple other things about this song. The song on the CD and record – the song on the CD runs – oh, and the record almost – Eight and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the radio edit is a little over four. Uh, there's a lot taken out, mostly at the beginning and the end. Um, and also, you mentioned this before, it's the only song on the record that the original drummers, uh, drums are heard. It's... Terry Williams, Omar Hakim replaces them. Is also the very first video played on MTV Europe in 1987, mm-hmm. six years after the launch of MTV.
1: And perhaps just as famous uh, as this song and music video are, at least among the geeks and nerds that I hang out with. Uh, the Weird Al parody. I knew
0: you were going to bring that. Uh,
1: up. Created for this night, uh, created of this song for his 1989 comedy film UHF. Um, the song is a parody of uh, uh, this song combined with the theme song for the Beverly Hillbillies. Why I bring it up is because Weird Al went to Mark Knopfler and asked if he could do this. And Mark said, Yeah, absolutely. But I have to play the guitar part. So, in <laughs> U- uh, Mark Knopfler plays the guitar part in the parody of this song which is just absolutely bizarre yeah (laughs) fantastic but bizarre
0: i left that out of my notes because i knew you would cover it
1: perfect in (laughs) in the movie uhf there's even a fake music video done in the same style as the original that uh uh, is great and if you want to go check it out it is illegally on youtube so
0: love it but does it make you do the walk of life woohoo Song was released as a single, get to number seven on the Billboard charts, and number two in the UK, tying Private Investigations as their highest charting single in their home country.
1: Went to number one in Ireland as well. Uh, Hello, Ireland. Which apparently they have a huge fan base in Ireland, so. That's weird. I know, I had no idea, but.
0: It's another song that is in that Americana type vibe with a melody that is dominated by the kind of whimsical keyboard line that sort of sounds like a flute.
1: Oh, yeah. Alan Clark playing that keyboard is amazing in this song.
0: The original video for it was uh, a busker performing the song in the London subway or the tube. But that video was replaced by another video at Mark Knopfler's urging. It was a video of sports bloopers (laughs) interspersed with concert video of the band. And I loved it. So this was near the beginning of ESPN. And there just weren't a lot of chances to see bloopers like this, other than a show called the George Michael Sports Machine. No, not that George Michael. He kind of invented or at least popularized that style of video. And it was awesome. (laughs) And this video was awesome because it had that. Lyrically, the song is about a busker playing songs in the tube. And Knopfler name checks yeah. a number of oldies, oldies that the busker played in in the song itself. "Bebop Alula," that's an oldie. Right. Sings about a sweet loving woman, another oldie. And he do the song about the knife. That, of course, being the old Sinatra standard, Mac the Knife." Right.
1: Uh, the song also includes a number of woohoos, woohoo throughout the song. I saw an argument on the internet about which song in history has the most woohoos in it, and this was a top three contender. Really?
0: Yes. Uh, Knopfler lamented many years later when he said, There's too many woos at the beginning of Walk of Life. He said, I heard it on the radio the other day and thought, Oh my God, what was I doing that for? <laughs> uh,
1: Here, have a little uh, listen to what this song sounds like. It is almost a rockabilly song. It is right, it's right
0: there. Yeah, it's very close. And as far as popular culture is concerned, it was played during the opening scene of the very first episode of the Bing ba- uh, Big Bang Theory spinoff, Young Sheldon. Um, also, the song was almost left off the record entirely because Neil Dorfsman hated it. and Dorf le- on mistakes. Gladly he was outvoted. <laughs> but uh, they slipped it in the album, which one might say is your latest trick.
1: Illusions, Matthew. <laughs> Tricks are what whores do for money. <laughs> or candy. Oh. It's a very interesting song. Right, It
0: is. Obviously, it's another song about hookers and bars and late-night grittiness in the city.
1: And it's got some sexy sax, but it is not the sexy <sighs> sax man. <laughs> it's Randy Brecker, uh, who's a fantastic jazz musician <sighs> and composer with a, discog- with a discography and a list of collaborations that stretches across several Wikipedia pages. However... I agree. I'm pretty sure we're going to agree on this. This is a very '80s song. Are we talk. Are we talk about Randy
0: Brecker or Michael Brecker. Both Breckers, because Michael Brecker plays the sax. I'm sorry. Yes, Michael Brecker. Yeah, 900 records he's played on in his yeah. career. 900
1: nuts. 15 right? Grammys. I'm sorry. I did say Randy Brecker. It Randy is Brecker. Michael Brecker.
0: Michael. Uh, Randy Brecker played the trumpet in yes. the song, so they're both on there. And this is where the song starts to really date itself. Uh, because it becomes a victim of 80s production and it, becomes, it goes full soft rock and adult contemporary and would be about <laughs> this time that I start to lose interest in the record. Not that the songwriting is poor, it's just thin. And what he the grit that he's trying to portray in the lyrics, because it's a song about hookers and dirty cities and stuff, this, the music is too soft to convey that. Um, I suppose if I wanted to listen to a jazz record... This song would be perfect, sure, but I didn't, and it takes me completely (laughs) out of the groove. And that's not meant to take anything away from the performances, which are first rate, and the guitar especially is wonderful and ends up, but it ends up sounding like a really bad movie soundtrack.
1: Yeah, it just—I feel like this is misplaced on this album. Have a listen and, and tell us what you think of the 1980s here. So this puts a very specific image in my head, Matthew. I can just imagine a music video for this song, which is the, the, the band parts and everything. And then during the, the saxophone, it's some shitty Copperfield knockoff magician dancing around to perform some trick.
0: With his that, shirt like right, open, to his belly shirt button. open
1: to his belly button. And he's just... And then it turns out... And then he poses and looks at the camera when he finishes the trick. And it's just a really dumb trick. <laughs> that didn't quite work. So here's what I'm going to do, Matthew. And what? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this out here. I didn't okay. even... This just popped into my head. I'm going to do it. So we're recording this in October of 2021. Our third year anniversary will be next July. That is correct. So if by our third anniversary in July, we can get 100 Patreon subscribers. I like this. At either level, we will make that music video. Ooh, we'll do it. We will do it. We will film it. We will we will put it together, and we will paste it. We'll post it. We'll paste it first, and then post it. Oh, I'm excited about this. For our Patreon users. And then maybe if we can figure out how to do it without getting a copyright hit, we will share it with everybody else a few months after that. I think what they don't know is that
0: video is our profession
1: in real life. Right. It'll be easier for us, but that's okay.
0: Right. So it'll be really
1: good. Right. Oh, and, and audio do. and video are our profession, so it'll, it'll probably turn out pretty cool. But- I'm just going to put this out there, too. Uh, I will play the shitty David Copperfield knockoff magician. Oh, now
0: I'm even more excited.
1: And I will do it a la Chris Farley in that Chippendales <laughs> thing. I will, I will rip a shirt off if I have to. Oh, I love this idea. So if you're interested in that, subscribe to our Patreon between now and July. Right. Uh, if, Like I said, 100 subscribers, either tier, the patreon.com forward slash audio judo. I will do it.
0: I'm excited I, I about will, this. I will put it out there. That's funny because I was thinking... See, as soon as the sax started, all I saw in my head was like a really bad 80s episode of General Hospital. Oh yeah, that's exactly what it's like that sounds Luke like. Luke and Laura or something. Just a, like, just a bad soap opera. It's so bad. Uh and I want to like it because it has some of the best lyrical moments on the entire album. Yes, it does. So, well now my door was standing open, security was laid back and lax, but it was only my heart got broken. You must have had a pass key made out of wax. You played robbery with insolence. I mean, that's great stuff, right? but it's wrapped in a bunch of crap. <laughs> a good song, Ridiculous. wrong record. Yeah. That's how I feel about it. But you know what? You know what Alfred E. Newman says? Why worry? Why worry?
1: Also the next song. Last track of the first side of the cassette. Yeah, and it's this nice, tranquil song. And uh, I think that this, this is a very um, transitional song. Because the beginning of this album is a little more poppy, a little more, oh, yeah. you know, upbeat. And the whole second part of this album has one continuous theme throughout it.
0: Yes. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute,
1: obviously. it's
0: So it's eight and a half minutes long. Mm-hmm. But for four minutes on the record, because the last four minutes are instrumental, they just plopped it off. Yeah. Beautiful guitar playing on this song. And it has some Spanish influences in it, which are really pretty. But really, what really stands out is that it, plays almost like a lullaby yes uh as we all know on this show i have a strong connection with the lyrics Mm -hmm. and when you dig down in this song i actually think he is singing to a child in the first verse and then his wife or girlfriend or whatever in the second verse the first verse is baby i see this world has made you sad some people can be bad The things they do, the things they say, but baby, I'll wipe away those bitter tears. I'll chase away those restless fears and turn your blue skies into gray. Very much singing to a child, I feel, because he has boiled down society. Other people are being bad or good, and that's made you sad, but I'll fix it. It's very simple. It's all very simple talking to a child. It's very simple. In the second verse, baby, when I get down, I turn to you and you make sense of what I do. I know it's hard to say, but baby, just when this world seems mean and cold, our love comes shining red and gold, and all the rest is by the way. This, well, this one seems very relationship-oriented to me. And he uses the term baby in both verses, and I think he is actually singing to a baby in the first verse and his baby in the second. It's a very effective literary technique when you break it down like that, that he's actually like singing to both. Uh, I think it's v- very effective. Yeah,
1: there's also a really interesting juxtaposition here between the soothing guitar sounds that are played and the sort of sharp synth sounds that happen throughout this song. Mm-hmm. Uh, have a little listen here.
2: i always been the same
1: That unique guitar sound is almost a stand-in for like a steel guitar, like you would hear in country songs. Mm -hmm. And I agree with – I think you said it earlier. This is very much – it feels like a country song. Yeah. Uh, And sort of in support of that, uh, it it was sort of influenced by the Everly Brothers. And then the Everly Brothers did a cover of this song in 1986 on their album Born Yesterday. That makes sense. Which is a very interesting – like, oh, this song was influenced by you – and now you're going to cover And now it. we're doing it. That's a weird, weird circle to go through. Also, the longest song on this album. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is 8 minutes and 31 seconds. And like you said, they just sort of lopped the end off on the LP version. Um, I personally feel like the long instrumental at the end of this is a little indulgent. Big time. And I don't think you lose anything by lopping it off. <laughs> so listen to it once. No. Uh, to hear what it was originally meant to sound like. And then you don't ever have to listen to it again.
0: Right across the river?
1: I would love to.
0: Okay. If there is a song that suffers the greatest casualty, and yes, I'm using a war term for Indeed. a war song with a production, it's this one. This song had the potential to be so great, and it comes out eh, pretty good. Yeah. Ostensibly, it's a song about war, told from a soldier's point of view who is quickly coming to the realization that wars are pointless, and at the end of the day, it's all politics, and doesn't remember the people who fought it and the costs for waging it. Uh, he could have made this song so gritty. And haunting, oh, yeah. and it just comes out pretty. Every tool in the book is being used here the synclavier, the super clean guitar sound with a ton of reverb, the fluted electronic drums that are being panned ear to ear. It's stilted. Yeah. The guitar playing is brilliant, as are the trumpet flourishes, but I really wanted so much more. Uh, this song, again, is almost seven minutes long with a two or three minute instrumental ending. And you wonder how much of this had to do with the laid-back vibe of where they were recording.
1: Well, I, I also do kind of wonder, too. So, like we talked about, early CD, early digital recording. Yeah. Before that, you had artificial limitations on what you could do. So you knew, okay, this tape is only seven minutes long. So if we want to make a number longer than this, we are going to go from one tape to another, and then it turns into this complex editing process that costs a lot of money and time. So musicians would intentionally make you know, recordings less than that. Even if they were going to freestyle or whatever a little bit, the recording would be less than that. Same thing with the album outputs. We could do, what was it, 48 minutes on an LP? Something like that, yeah. Um. So uh, 24 per side. So they knew, okay, we have to have this song be three minutes and 30 seconds or it's not going to fit on this album. For the first time ever with digital, they can say, we don't give a shit. We can record as long as we want. Pretty much. And we can just, you know, noodle and play around with music and, and see what sounds good and what sounds bad. And then when we edit it onto a CD, it can be 90 minutes long. That's true. 91 minutes long or whatever the CD originally was. 86? Something like that. Yeah. It can be the 76, album. 76? 76. 76. Oh, 76 and 80. That's yeah. what it was. It'll actually record 80, but the guy limited the standard to 76, 76. minutes because it was as long as his favorite symphony. Um, but anyways, yeah, you can... <laughs> That's how it works. That's you can just do it now. You can make you could make one track that was seventy six minutes long, or you could make seventy six tracks that were only a minute long. Now, oh, I love that idea. Right, it's a fantastic idea. Sounds sounds like a soundtrack album that has like two hundred and fifty six tracks <laughs> on it. <laughs> Great. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I wonder how much of it is a response because of that.
0: And I think that that definitely helped, but also the vibe in which they were recording. Was completely relaxed and laid back. Yeah. Have I told you the story about Air Studios yet,
1: Kyle? You have not yet.
0: So Air Studios Montserrat was the second studio built by the Air Company, founded by Beatles producer George Martin. Air standing for Associated Independent Recording. Ah. They built the studio on the tiny, idyllic West Caribbean island of Montserrat in the shadow of the then-dormant Soufrière Volcano. The island is 10 miles by 7 miles with a population of about 13,000 when the studio was built in 1979. And it was the perfect setting for making an album. Small populations, perfect island location, lots of sun and fun and relaxing, maybe too much. Anyway, Elton John recorded three albums there. The Police 2, Rush, Paul McCartney, Black Sabbath, all recorded there throughout the 80s. Who? Yeah, exactly. Who are any of these people? Nobody. In the summer of 1989, the Rolling Stones had just completed their album Steel Wheels when Hurricane Hugo blew in and blew the studio to Oh, Just like that. Gone. All the buildings were deemed unsafe to use, and the studio was shuttered permanently. But we aren't done. In 1995, the long, dormant Soufriere Hills volcano began erupting, destroying the airport, covering much of the capital city of Plymouth in mud. Not done yet. The volcano again blew its top. This time with ash and pyroclastic flow in 1997, killing 20 people, destroying even more of the city. The population that was once 13,000 has now shrunk to 5,000, with most of the people relocating to the UK. The studio is still visible, but closed to the public.
1: So what you're telling me is the Rolling Stones pissed God off so much that he destroyed an entire island. The guy's been
0: trying trying to kill Keith Richards for years. No (sighs) luck. No dice.
1: Well here's it here's a, what ride across the river sounds like and we don't... Remember those kiosks in like Walmart or Target that you used to walk up to with all the new wave sounds on them and you could push a button? Yeah. That flute sound is definitely very prominent there. So I feel like this song, had it not been quite so 80s and electronic-y, it would have fallen in that same category of the stereotypical Vietnam song. Very much. And I'm talking about uh, Fortunate Son by Creedence Clearwater Revival, All Along the Watchtower by Jimi Hendrix, Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones, among countless others, uh, that they always play, you know, when there's like, oh, it's the last helicopter out of Saigon. Or, okay, you God, know.
0: We have to play this song.
1: Yes. Here's Fortunate Son while some people in a helicopter shoot Vietnamese villagers. <laughs> That's and horrible. On top of that, it's capped off by, I think... A sakuhachi, which is a Japanese flute. An actual version of it. There's that weird digital flute throughout. You think it. that that's a real flute? At the end. Oh, okay. At the end, there's that sort of a hoo doo doo sound. I'm I pretty feel pretty like sure, it's midi I'm pretty sure that one is a real flute. It sounds very real to me. I don't but know. But I might be wrong.
0: All I know is the man's too strong. An acoustic guitar song in the middle of this rock album. Another song told from a soldier's point of view? Right. This time it's a soldier who is clearly sensitive on the inside, but feels as though his feelings may betray who he is supposed to be as a soldier. Soldiers are supposed to be tough, according to him, and he questions if you should let those feelings show at all. But he has also done a a bunch of bad stuff as a soldier, and he's seeking absolution from a priest, repeatedly.
1: It's it's interesting to me that you would think that he's sensitive on the inside, because I actually took this to be the opposite. Really? In that he's an old soldier, and... What soldiers get to be old soldiers? Oh, either the hardened ones? Either the absolute most brutal and horrible ones because they defeat all of their enemies, or the incredibly devious and brutal and sneaky ones who do things that are horrible in order to survive, and then he's singing about, you know, oh, I'm I'm soft and gentle. Really, I am. And he's actually being sneaky and devious oh, about it.
0: That's fair. That's a fair assessment. I like it. I'll go with that. As far as songs go... Uh, this is way more effective than the last one in terms of sound and execution. It's written like a Western song, like an old West yes. song with sparse production. It works so much better. The acoustic guitar is bright, but not processed. Uh, making a guest appearance on Guitar Synthesizer, as you brought up earlier, is Jack Sonny. Uh, he's a member of the band. Uh, he would become a member of the band on this record and stay with him for the next seven years. He was also the VP of Marketing for Guitar Center for five years. Wow. Which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh this is for sure one of my favorites on the record because I feel like they took a step and recorded something really special without all the bells and whistles. Sometimes you need to strip it down and find there's a really good song there and just leave it alone and let it let it do its own work. Uh this song also ends with almost 2 minutes of instrumental which seems to be a bit of a pattern here mm-hmm. but lots of room to play.
1: Here have a little listen.
0: And i tried to be me, I've tried to be mine But I spat like a woman, and I like a child I have lived behind walls, and I may be alone Striven for peace, which I never have known And I can still hear his laughter, and I can still hear his song
2: too big. The man's too strong.
1: I, I feel like the the last lines in this song he's finally been caught and he's paying for his crimes and he's about to be executed. Mm. In the courtyard. And the lines are You always was a Judas, but I got you anyway. You may have got your silver, but I swear upon my life, your sister gave me diamonds and I gave them to your wife. Ooh, Literally, ooh. you caught me, but while you were away, I fucked your sister <laughs> and I fucked your wife. <laughs> that is such a baller move before somebody's about to shoot you. I like it. Right? I like it. Way to pick up on that, Kyle. Try, trying my best. Yeah, gold. Matthew, this is only one world.
0: This song feels like it belongs on the first side of the record.
1: Yeah, I would agree, yes.
0: Definitely has the more straight-ahead rock sound to it with a high pop sheen. This is the 80s. How do I know? That's Tony Levine on the bass. Right. I recognize that sound anywhere. He's played with so many people, primarily known as Peter Gabriel's bass player. He has a distinct look, bald with giant glasses, (laughs) and a distinct sound. He plays the Chapman stick, which is this weirdly shaped bass beast And he plays them with his funk fingers. Basically what he did, he took drumsticks, chopped them in half, and connected them to his picking fingers. And plays that way. So you get this really percussive slap sound that's very evident in the song. It's really fucking cool. And that's, if you've ever seen him play with Gabriel, he's got this, it basically has like a foot-long fingertips. And it's like, and he slaps it. It's so freaking cool well,
1: here have a little listen and tell us uh, tell us what you think
0: can't get no remedy on my TV it's nothing but the same old news where they can't find a To me, this song sounds a lot like mid-'80s Jethro Tull.
1: I would agree with that.
0: If anyone out there is curious, go check out Tull's 1987 album, Crest of a Knave, and you will hear the similarities that I'm talking about. That was the album that beat Metallica's "And Justice for All for the heavy metal Grammy, which is absolutely (laughs) hilarious because it's the (laughs) furthest thing from heavy metal. Uh, But but it's great. Uh, The
1: song sounds like it belongs on Miami Vice. You know what this song sounds exactly like to me? What? This sounds exactly like the soundtrack to Lethal Weapon. <laughs> and it is for sure this album influenced the soundtrack to Lethal Weapon and its sequels. There is no way that it didn't. Mm. There's there's no possible way that it didn't. Now, that being said, I like the movie Lethal Weapon. Yeah. Mel Gibson is a human piece of trash.
0: He is a human piece of trash. But what, the, the what, movies are pretty good. When did the first one come out? Like, 87, right? Eighty seven. yeah. Oh, okay, so it, it's not that far off.
1: No. Uh, it's This definitely could have influenced that.
0: And I thought the name of the song was Antidote for Blues all these years. Mm-hmm. Not One World, which explains why I could never find it when I looked it up years ago. Oh, makes sense. Because I kept typing in Antidote for Blues and I couldn't find it. Yeah,
1: it makes it sense. It's totally a totally
0: dated song, but I like it.
1: Totally dated, but the message is uh, pretty prescient. Yeah. Can't get no sleeves from my records. Can't get no laces from my shoes. Uh, feels pretty uh, current right now when you're like, I can't get anything that I need to order online. Oh, thanks a lot, of the, supply uh, chain. Supply chain issues. Not to, not to date our episode, but uh, there it is. What are you talking about?
0: Supply chain's fixed, right? What's wrong with these guys? Brothers
1: in arms.
0: Another song about war. hmm And the whole thing is right there in the title. It's about realizing that regardless of the side that you're fighting for, we are all brothers in arms. We need to come to that point where we understand that we have one world to fight for, and we all lead different lives, but we should all have the same goal, and that's fighting for one another. And it's a beautiful song to end the record go ahead
1: how much do you know about the Falklands war uh I know
0: quite a bit but I'll let you tell the story
1: all right so it was a a conflict that happened between the UK and Argentina uh, over the ownership rights to the Falkland Islands which are off the coast of Argentina Uh, the islands are recognized as British territories but in 1982 Argentina said no they belong to us Uh, in the 10-week conflict Britain lost 258 soldiers Argentina lost two, uh, sorry, 649 soldiers And three Falkland Islanders Were killed in the conflict uh, There's a wonderful breakdown In the middle of the song That sounds a little bit like this
2: These mist-covered
1: mountains
2: Are home now for me But my home is alone.
1: So in writing this, Knopfler looked at a whole bunch of images of the Falkland Islands, and he saw a lot of the um, the landscape there, reminded him a lot of the Midlands of England, um, as well as the places where he grew up. And I think that that's what that breakdown is all about. It's all about how we're not that different. We're brothers in arms. Mm-hmm. Um, The title itself came from Knopfler's father, who, in describing the Falklands War, referred to the British and Argentinian soldiers as brothers in arms, uh, meaning they had similar ideologies to one another. Uh, In 2007, Knopfler also released a new version of this track to mark the 25th anniversary of the conflict, and all the proceeds from that went to a program to help veterans deal with post-traumatic stress stress disorder, which I think is fantastic. I'm happy that he's... uh, helping people who had issues uh, uh, dealing with the trauma from war. I think that's great.
0: It's an absolutely beautiful, powerful song. And I have one more story, if I could, if you can indulge me. Uh, It is corresponding. I think I've talked about how in my uh, mid-teens, I was typically angsty, you know, angry a lot for no reason, devoted to music. Uh, And my mom, who had been my best friend growing up, was being pushed away by me. Obviously, at the time, I was unaware of this, but hindsight is is wonderful. Yeah. But clearly, I was trying to separate myself and put some distance in there, and I wanted to be my own man, whatever that meant. I don't know what it meant, but whatever. <laughs> so in May of 1988, May 4th to be exact, I was 15, and my mom came to me on a Saturday afternoon and said, Get your shoes on. You're coming with your dad and I to see a concert. Ooh. And I was like, which concert? And she said, Roger Whittaker. Being who I was, I probably said something not very nice, uh, akin to what I would do now, which is, of course, <laughs> uh, Roger Whitaker sang Christmas songs, some adult contemporary. No way. Do you even know who I am? <laughs> and she gave me no choice. So I went. I'm sitting there on the lawn of the Meadowbrook Amphitheater, 8,000-seat venue about a half hour from our house on the grounds of Oakland University. I'm sitting there next to my mom, and I did not care for his music, but I was enjoying his technical work. He had lasers and some great lighting stuff for an old geezer, and I was captivated by that. So in my head, I was like, this isn't a total fucking loss. Um, I was laid back on the blanket, eyes to the sky. And as the concert wound down, Whitaker said that he was going to close the show with a song by a band he long admired, and it was relevant for the day. He did a really long intro about it, and he said that it was by Dire Straits, and it was this song, Brothers in Arms. And I sat right up, and my eyes widened because it was something that I knew. And he proceeded to do a wonderful, beautiful 10-minute version of this song. And I looked at my mom, and I put my arm around her, and she put her head on my shoulder, and both of us quietly acknowledging how things in our relationship were changing. And I remember that moment like it was yesterday. And I start to think about the lyrics. There's so many different worlds, so many different suns, and we have just one world, but we live in different ones. And that's what we were going through, living different lives, but we'd always fight for each other. And I guess my whole goal from that story is for parents, keep reaching out to your kids that you think might be unreachable because they're listening, and kids Listen and be aware of when your parents are reaching out and they just want to connect and find that thread that keeps you guys together. And you never know what might be memories that last a lifetime. And that is all I have.
1: Can't end it on a better note than that, man.
0: So, well, I announced this on Audio Judo Does Jazz, but not here yet. So I guess with that closing story, now's a good time. Audio Judo will be launching another new podcast next year called Musical DNA. It's our stories with a musical thread. Use a song, an album, a musical, whatever, to tell how it impacted you. It could be short, it could be long, but we want your stories. Send them to us, and we will mine the stories for the appropriate music and make your story an episode. Kyle and I and Randy and our families are all going to participate, but most importantly, I want your stories. And you can send them to us at info at audiojudo.com and make your story. podcast. Now, if you want to talk more at length about an album that you feel is important to you, you can also do that, too. How would they do that, Yes, you
1: can. So, uh, like we mentioned a little earlier in this episode, we do have a Patreon. Uh, Our top tier, the backstage pass tier, is $20 a month. A little bit expensive. But for that, you get a very special personalized gift and the chance to co-host an episode of Audio Judo of your choice. You get to pick the album. We've already done one of these just the other day. And I think it will be released already by the time this episode comes out. Yes. So you will have already heard it, which is cool. (laughs) Unless you're new. Unless you're new, in in which which case, case, go go back back and and listen listen to it. Uh, but, uh, that, that benefit does activate only once after one year of patronage of that tier. Um, but it is, uh, it does force us to do an episode after whatever you want. You also get all the benefits of our lower tier, which is called the front row seats tier. It's $5 a month, but you get two day early access to all of our episodes. A shout out on a future episode as a loyal producer. Bonus mini episodes called judo chops, which are a lot of fun, and occasional bonus content such as unedited interviews and behind-the-scenes videos and tiny tidbits that got cut out of other episodes, mostly due to us farting and burping. Also, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, if we can get 100 Patreon subscribers of either tier by our third anniversary, which is July 17th, we'll say Sounds Ju- about right. we'll say July 17th, 2022. We will make a music video. Uh, based on your latest trick, that will be ridiculous.
0: (laughs) It's so over the top, you can't believe it. It will
1: be so over the top, and it will be so well-produced, you won't be able to believe it. If you think that's a good idea, if you think that's a bad idea, uh, if you think it's a good idea, obviously sign up for the Patreon. If you think it's a bad idea, email us or get in touch with us and let us know uh, why you think it's a bad idea and how would they do that, Matthew?
0: Uh, You can get a hold of us on Twitter at audio judo facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash audio judo i didn't write it down <laughs> that's and okay. instagram at audio underscore judo or you could uh, email us at info at audio judo.com
1: you can also check out our webpage uh, audio judo.com for all of that information hey,
0: you can spare five bucks yeah yeah hey, go to our merch store there's all new stuff for the holidays Ooh, yeah. Uh, That's at audiojuda.com as well. Um, We have our holiday episode and our year-end episodes coming up soon. Other than that, we will talk to you in two weeks. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.